Nature's Edge is brought to you by the Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina, Western North Carolina's only magazine dedicated to the fishing enthusiast. Pick one up at over 400 locations throughout Western North Carolina or visit them online at theanglermagazine.com to find out more. And be sure to follow them on Facebook, Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina.com. Welcome to Nature's Edge, where we explore a wide range of topics that aim to immerse the listener in the wonder, surprises, and importance that is nature. We've got a special guest with us today, Mr. Ben Prater. Ben is the Southeast Program Director for Defenders of Wildlife. Is that right, Ben? That is correct, Dale. Happy to be here. Yeah, and, and uh, Ben's got a, his background is in environmental management, environmental science, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of things today uh, that uh, that you guys are working on, and and uh, uh, one of the first things that I want to get involved with, and and let's talk a little bit about uh, Ben is the, is the red wolf situation. Where are we, and what's going on? You got it. Well, just as a way of introduction, the red wolf, um, which I like to refer to as the all American wolf, <clears throat> it's the only wolf native to the United States that has only ever existed in the lower forty eight. Uh, it's a fascinating animal, and we drove it to the brink of extinction uh, at the turn of the ninth, at the twentieth century. But we led a great effort to recover that critter, uh, bring it back uh, from the brink of extinction, and actually reintroduced it uh, in eastern North Carolina. It was the first carnivore ever reintroduced back into the wild, and the program was a, a, a great model and success. Actually, became the model uh, for success in Yellowstone, but. Uh, as successful as that program was for about 20 years, it has taken a pretty drastic turn here recently. The, um, uh, I know that early on, weren't they also introduced into Western North Carolina? I mean, talk a little bit about where they are now. Yeah. So right now they're located in five counties on uh, an area called the Albemarle Peninsula, uh, in Eastern North Carolina. That area was chosen because as a peninsula, it was sort of easy for managers and scientists to kind of keep track of the wolves, to understand about what they were what they were up to. Because, again, this was the first program of its kind. They wanted to be um, have some security about what they were doing there. But they were also reintroduced into the Smokies uh, in the uh, early 90s. And unfortunately, that, that introduction did not uh, succeed. And there's a number of reasons that, that are noted for that. But one of the biggest challenges was that terrain was so... Uh, challenging for the scientists to be able to get to the animals and vaccinate and and, and manage them properly. Yeah, I know. You know, forever endangered species. Uh, you know, the re- re- road to recovery uh, is is anything but but straightforward, and it, it often in, entails a lot of give and take. Um, where where are the red wolves now? And do you know about how many we have out in the wild? Yeah, so it's it's we're back down in dire straits again. Uh, there's probably no more than 30 to 40 animals on the ground. Uh, we only know that there are at least 24. Those are the only ones we actually have collars on to, to keep track of those. And they're primarily in the east, uh, eastern part of the state? They are. So they're in that five-county area. Uh, and there's about at least three packs that are still sort of on the ground. And, you know, when we say packs and, and red wolf parlance, that's usually about 8 to 12 animals, not sort of the large packs you'll see with multifamily groups like you do in the West. The red wolf looks a lot like coyotes, don't they? They sure do. They're very closely related, in fact. Yeah, and uh, 
I would think that that could also be a problem from time to time with people uh, with a growing coyote population and and uh, people kind of taking pot shots at them. And uh, yeah, in fact, that was one of the biggest uh, problems we experienced over the last decade was as coyotes um, filled in that vacuum that was left with the loss of wolves on the landscape. Uh, you know, coyotes are very adaptable and they moved in quick. Uh, and a lot of our practices and development ushered them right in uh, alongside. And so when those coyotes showed up in the Red Wolf territory, uh, you're absolutely right. People uh, mis- mis- uh, mistook them for, um, mistook the wolves for, for coyotes. And that was a real problem uh, for a number of reasons. One, you know, a juvenile Red Wolf and an adult coyote are very similar in size. Uh, also, Red Wolves are out patrolling territory, you know, in the... Uh, early and late winter, which is also usually deer season. So as folks are sitting in a deer stand, uh, see what they think is a coyote wander by. And we have very liberal regulations on coyote hunting in North Carolina. Um, and so it, that, that mistaken identity situation did happen. In fact, the state of North Carolina went so far as to open up night hunting for coyotes, which really caused a dramatic um, uh, impact to the red wolf population. What is it, talking about the state, sort of where does the state stand with the uh, with the Red Wolf? Well, the state has uh, aligned themselves with a pretty vocal minority uh, that are uh, against the Red Wolf and against the federal government's uh, program to recover the Red Wolf. Uh, the, this, when the state looks at this, they're seeing it as a challenge for their ability to allow folks to manage for coyotes uh, and don't see the program success uh, and aren't really willing to look and see uh, where that future could take us. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service is a bit in a um, sticky position because they need the state to support their efforts to do the recovery. Um, I can say the state and the feds right now are, are not in line with where the public is. Public are overwhelmingly in support, including public that live in the places where these wolves are, overwhelmingly in support of the wolves being there. And uh, and, and a little more about the feds. Are they uh, sort of on our side or – well, it's been, it's, it's been difficult. Um, right now, they have uh, put out a new rule uh, which guides the management of this particular population of red wolves. And this new rule would actually, if, if implemented uh, under what we call the preferred alternative, in other words, what the, the Fish and Wildlife Service would prefer to do, it would restrict that five-county area by about 90%, from about 1.7 million acres to just over 200,000. Um, and that's not enough territory to support uh, a population of wolves. And the restrictions they're applying, um, if they're not bad enough to add sort of insult to injury, they are also proposing that any wolf that leaves that new zone of protection could be shot on site, would have no protection against being taken. And then we're talking about one of the most endangered canines in the entire world. Yeah, yes, I'm very aware of that. What, uh, what's the role that, that zoos have played or are playing with the red wolf? Well, in the red wolf situation and many other um, near situations where we've had near extinction, zoos have played a very critical role, least of all being a way to educate the public about the importance of conservation, but actually a very hands-on role in helping to recover these populations. In fact, uh, zoos affiliated under the Species Survival Program for red wolves, there's about 43 facilities involved with that now, are actually actively engaged in breeding these animals to preserve their genetics and to uh, grow a population that, with the intention of having those animals released into the wild. 
uh, I, I know the local uh, uh, nature conservancy here has has some has some wolves, don't they? Or, or? right, the West Oklahoma Nature Center yeah. also has has wolves. Um, I don't believe they bred successfully this year, but in years past they have whelped litters, which has been great. And you know, anytime red wolves are born in captivity, it's a it's a time to to to, to rejoice because these animals again are very very exceptionally rare. Uh, and there are not a lot of genes, uh, and so having these animals born gives us more opportunity to grow that population in the wild. Yeah, I was going to ask you about with with uh, small numbers of animals like this. Oftentimes, one of the problems that we face is inbreeding. Uh, uh, and uh, it, has that been a case with the uh, with the red wolf? It's certainly a concern, and I think um, the science that's looked at the genetics of red wolves they seem to have been fairly resilient. Uh, in that regard. What we tend to worry about, and as we saw this with Florida panthers and other very suppressed, what we call a bottlenecked population, uh, it can lead to degeneration of the health and fitness of those animals. The red wolves, even when inbreeding had had occurred, uh, it didn't seem to have a deleterious effect on their health. That said, it's still not something you want to promote or have happen, uh, but we've done a pretty good job, and the zoos have been uh, carrying water for that to make sure that genetic integrity is held as high as it can. Ben, what's the uh, what's the greatest challenge uh, that that uh, uh, is being faced uh, with the red wolf? Just... Well, in in in, in my pers- from my perspective, I think it really boils down, uh, unfortunately, to politics. And when I say politics, I'm, I know we're in election season. I'm not talking about necessarily electoral politics. I'm talking about uh, polit- small p politics, the community, how we engage with one another, how we how we get along, how we communicate, and. What we've seen here with the Red Wolf situation is, you know, a few outspoken folks who were kind of fed up and had a very anti-federal government sentiment really use the Red Wolf as a symbol to uh, really foment the community and get behind um, being antagonistic towards the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Red Wolf program. Um, We're trying to turn that around, in fact. So that that is the greatest challenge, and I say it's the greatest because it's probably the one that unfortunately has to take the most time to – get folks, you know, myths are able to be caught on to very quickly. Getting the facts out there and getting people to understand the reality of the situation uh, as they know it, as they value it, is, is quite a challenge. So we're, we're working to change that right now, actually engaging locals who support the program and helping uh, to reach out to their friends, families, and neighbors to really, you know, talk about the benefits of conservation of these wild species and wild places. Yeah, I I know uh, defenders of wildlife have been doing that for some time, and and uh, and I guess one of the main things you guys do is is reach out to the local communities, not just where the wolves are located, but uh, all over. Yeah, in fact, I mean, for our for our efforts, uh, it's big on outreach, education, uh, whether that's you know young kids to adults to folks in these communities. It's also helping to organize, to raise people's voices about the things they value most. And then again, you know, the big effort for us with uh, red wolves and other carnivores, other species that are challenging for conservation because of the sometimes the fear we hold for them or even the economic problems we suffer from, whether it's livestock losses, although I will say that's not a problem in red wolf country. But uh, the word we use and the program we out, outline for that is what we call coexistence, really helping to reduce human wildlife conflict, minimizing interactions that can be harmful for the wildlife and and for people. Uh, And that's, the red wolves have made that job somewhat easy because they don't get into a lot of trouble, but the coyotes do, 
And uh, unfortunately, with coyotes and red wolves being in the same territory, how we manage coyotes is going to impact how we are able to support and conserve red wolves. Do you have crossbreeding between the coyotes? And yes, the red it, it has occurred. Um, <clears throat> what I what I will say to that, people often point that out as being sort of this existential uh, crisis for, for, for the red wolf, that if they're able to interbreed, they certainly can't be a species and they certainly won't persist. Those, that's simply not true. In fact, I mentioned some of the exciting science that had been developed through the red wolf program. Uh, one of that, those aspects was an adaptive management plan. It actually went out and, uh, collared and tracked coyotes, ones that were, uh, potentially pairing up with uh, red wolves were, were sterilized, so those ter- territories were held, but they couldn't breed. Uh, and so some of those things were, were put forward, and that's kind of heavy-handed, um, but it was successful. And so all of all the hybridization events that have occurred, there have been very few. Uh, only about uh, 4% of the genes of red wolves have been uh, influenced by that. And what we learned through this process is it wasn't necessarily that the wolves and coyotes had sort of a natural instinct to want to interbreed. It was really more out of necessity. Uh, when you're an animal that breeds one time a year uh, and you're a female that just lost her mate because it was shot or hit by a car and a red wolf, uh, excuse me, a coyote wanders into your territory, chances are you might, you might mate and mingle. Uh, and that's also a problem because the numbers of red wolves are so low. Um, in a more natural situation where you have a healthy, robust population of wolves, they're going to exclude coyotes from that territory. So it's really kind of a numbers game. Uh, And I think that's what's been most challenging is how do we get enough wolves out there that folks can both accept and tolerate that also allow them to, from an ecological perspective, reduce those coyote numbers and resist them naturally. Now they have, what, one litter a year? They do. And about how many pups will they? Uh, Generally between two and six, although – a female wolf can support eight pups. In fact, one of the techniques they have developed uh, with this program is called pup fostering, where they found that it was difficult to take, you know, young or adult wolves that had gotten somewhat habituated in, in zoos and release them into the wild. Instead, they would take pups. They're all born the same time of year. Uh, they would take those young pups born in captivity and then actually insert them into the dens in the wild and, uh, I think, without exception, the mother wolves and the wolf pack accepted those new pups right away. Uh, and that's been pretty exciting because it's a kind of a way to get new genetics out there and boost those numbers really, really quickly. Yeah, that, I, I know that's exciting stuff. Um, is there hope, Ben? There is hope. Uh, there, there, there's a hope for this program. I think we're seeing the politics shift, uh, both in local communities um, and across the state and across the nation. In fact, with this proposal I just outlined that Fish and Wildlife Service put forward, um, we, along with other conservation organizations, were able to, to, to get over 100,000 people to s- sign comments, submit comments to Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, I'm proud to report that 99.9% of them were in favor of conserving red wolves and opposed to what the service had proposed. Um, and so that, that's, that's very telling. The public is supportive of this. We also, uh, the, the governor of North Carolina submitted comments in favor of the program. And he said something really that I think is important, which is you know, red wolves should be a source of pride for, for North Carolinians and Americans far and wide. So we believe that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's um, what can uh, What can citizens, what can the public do to, to uh, uh, both uh, to help uh, the red wolf and, and defenders of wildlife? Well, there's a number of things you can do. 
um, if if it's about supporting uh, defenders and other conservation organizations like ours, you know, check out our websites. Ours is defenders.org. Uh, you, there you can offer your support. We also really want to see people uh, raising their voice, you know, becoming an advocate. That's really important. Uh, and we, we see that happening more and more, you know, on, on venues like social media and writing to your local paper and, you know, getting out there and having your voice heard and standing up for your values. Um, and we also really want people to go and visit Red Wolf Country. Um, those five counties uh, need all the economic support they can get, and we're pretty sure that if your local shop owner or restaurateur is going to have guests in there and saying they're there to see the Red Wolves, that's going to change some hearts and minds uh, as we start having more economic interest and value in the conservation of those species. That, that, that area is already seen as an incredible uh, area for wildlife, particularly black bear. Uh, so we know that that place is known for wildlife. We want to make sure the red wolf is front center um, in that awareness as well. And if there's a uh, if there's an individual or a group of individuals that do want to get more involved, uh, I'm assuming they can contact you guys at Defenders of Wildlife, and you can sort of give them some tools or some language to use. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, uh, I mentioned social media. We have a uh, Facebook group that we do that on. Um, it's uh, just Defenders of Wildlife dash Red Wolves. If you look look that up, if you're on social media and on Facebook, that's a good way to connect. Um, also, if you go to our website uh, or just email Southeast Office at defenders.org. We are always looking forward and happy to hear from folks interested in supporting conservation of red wolves and any other species that we work on. And uh, and I think that's important, uh, people. Before you uh, before you tar- start talking about things and and something that you're very passionate about, get get some real information about uh, about what's going on and and uh, uh, so that we're all kind of speaking with that that same tongue. Yeah, and also I think that goes into making sure that the energy we're putting out there can be effective and uh, directed in the right way. You know, we're always happy to share the facts to share our perspective and also help people understand what, what we feel and, and what we hope will be most effective if, if they were to do, you know, this action or that action or write this letter or that one, what we really want to steer them. So we use that energy wisely. And I guess if, uh, if schools or, or organizations uh, are interested in uh, you or some of your staff coming and speaking, uh, you're happy to do that. Always. In fact, I've got uh, one person on staff. That's m- most of his job is doing the outreach. In fact, uh, he really led the effort to champion the Red Wolf program statewide. It's made a huge difference, and we're always happy to come and talk to civic groups, school groups, you know, meetings, whatever people are interested in hearing more about wildlife uh, in North Carolina and the whole region. So, that's uh, that's good stuff, Ben. That's. Uh, uh the Red Wolf stuff and what you guys are doing is is amazing and incredible, uh, uh, especially with some of the uh, the obstacles that that you guys are faced with. But I think you're doing a a tremendous job there in doing that. Uh, what else is uh, What else is going on with? Uh... Well, a lot. Uh, we are very busy these days, um, and I'm excited about a number of things. Uh, one of the more innovative programs that we've got underway right now that I'm particularly excited about has to deal with maybe I'm excited about because that deals with one of my favorite critters, uh, which is the Eastern Hellbender. That's a, a giant North American salamander, aquatic salamander. It's actually the largest one uh, in our area, and it can grow up to lengths of almost two feet. 
And it's one that uh, blends in pretty well with the surroundings, so you're, you're, you're not likely to see them. But uh, they're very uh, important members of our aquatic communities. Uh, if you've got hellbenders in your stream, you can rest assured that's a, a nice, healthy stream for, for fish and other, other things you may care about, water quality, least of, among them. Uh, but we've got an initiative going on right now called the Southeastern Hellbender Conservation Initiative. This is a massive effort we've got underway with um, dozens of partners coming together to develop a, a good conservation future for that species. It's been in decline for quite some time. It's uh, approaching that, that, that really critical juncture for conservation where it's slipping towards being threatened or endangered. And we, we would love to make sure that the species that are getting near that point are pulled back before they slip and need that level of federal protection and, and all the oversight that's required and instead work to conserve them on what we call the front end or be more proactive and innovative. And one of the biggest threats these animals face is actually sediment pollution. Right. Uh, much of that comes from the way we use the land. And so we are, this, this initiative, one of its first efforts we have underway with it is actually working with landowners, working with agricultural producers, you know, farmers, foresters, and others to help advance conservation practices, um, you know, whether that's helping to repair riparian areas, you know, get cattle out of streams, uh, and do these things in a way that incentivizes good conservation ac action, voluntary conservation action. We want to work with people versus against them. And I think that's, that's an exciting new effort underway and one that gives me a lot of hope as well. Are hellbenders found in most rivers in western North Carolina? Not in most. Uh, they're found sort of in the uh, Little Tennessee Basin, so all the rivers that feed that. They're also, so that includes like your French Broad uh, River and Pigeon River, those areas. Uh, they also tend to be in these sort of second-order streams, a little higher up, where you've really got to have clear, uh, cool running water. They line up pretty well with where some of our native trout, the brook trout, does. Uh, but they also have to have a unique geology because they, they nest under rocks, and that's why the sediment is such a problem is it can fill in those spaces they need to, to breed. It's, um, again, they, that's amazing stuff, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I've actually seen hellbenders. I love to, to uh, snorkel in rivers in, uh, in the Little Tennessee. I've actually uh, spotted one, but, but you're correct. They're very hard to see. Yes. I mean, they blend in very well to their environment. And, they uh, yeah, they do, and we've seen them in all kinds of crazy colors this year as well, black and white and bright orange and pretty fascinating stuff. That's, uh, that's, that's great stuff, again, that you guys are doing. Uh, anything else? Uh, well, there is one question I've got to ask you. We talked about it just briefly before uh, we went on the air, but just real quick, I've got to ask you about mountain lions. Uh, okay. Because there's been a, there's been a good bit of, uh, of discussion, and, and uh, uh, WLOS-TV had a picture of uh, what they think may be one so what is your thought well i've got lots of thoughts uh but i will tell you that you know for, for from a factual standpoint we don't necessarily have the evidence we need right now in western north carolina to say to confirm that they're here but that evidence is probably soon to come and so are the pumas uh, we know they exist and are, are are making their way into to western tennessee now i work primarily on florida panthers uh, and we're hoping to get those animals to move northward. So eventually we may see puma back across the southeastern landscape, which would be uh, wonderful. You know, we do want to see a world where we have the full range and full suite of species that were once here back in their native landscape. Um, but, 
you know, I think one thing I will say about mountain lions or pumas or cougars, whatever you want to call them, they're not something we need to be afraid of or fear. Uh, in fact, they do a really good job of avoiding people, which is probably why there's so much mythos around them in this part of the world. Um, that said, they are a large carnivore, but they're one that we also believe, like with wolves, we can coexist with. Ben, I really appreciate you uh, you being on Nature's Edge with us today and uh, bringing us up to date on what's going on with the uh, with the Red Wolf uh, uh, endeavor that you guys are, are taking, uh, along with others. Uh, Talking about the hellbender and uh, and answering my question on the uh, on the puma, you've been listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, and we will see you in the wild. Visit naturesedgemedia.com. You can check out podcasts, videos, lecture archives from Dale, and much more. Thank you for listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, brought to you by Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina. Does your current health insurance plan satisfy all your needs at an affordable price? At Kemper Reserve National, their goal is to give you the right health insurance plan with no high deductibles and low affordable premiums. At Kemper, each policy is customized to fit your needs. Enroll today. There are no open enrollment restrictions. Kemper Reserve National has been providing affordable health insurance solutions for over 60 years. Call your local Western North Carolina licensed rep, Wesley Brown, at 704-502-0162 or email him at wesleykemper1 at gmail.com.